You're listening to the sermon series, Dangerous Prayers, at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we see how God invites us to grow in Christ-likeness and step into His mission as we learn to pray, search us, break us, unite us, and send us. He's with you. It's good to be with you all this morning. Y'all singing this morning. That's awesome. It's great. I always want to remember as we continue to grow in how we express worship that preaching is a part of the worship service, right? It's participatory, so this isn't just information download dump on you guys. Um, You guys need to stay with me. If you're with me, you can say amen. If you can't say amen, you can say ouch, right? All right, Pastor Jamal's famous line. Um, Hey, if you would turn to your Bibles um, with me, we'll be in uh, John 17. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word, I invite you to do so. We'll be looking at John 17, 20 through 23 this morning. Hear the Word of the Lord. I, Jesus, am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one just as you and I, Father, are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And they may be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you have united us in Christ. That just as you are united, Father, Son, and Spirit, we as the church are united. God, as we study uh, your word this morning, as we look at what it means to pray this dangerous prayer, unite us, we ask that you would give us the power to understand to embody, to live out this dangerous prayer. Jesus, we do pray that even though we are united, you would continue to unite us as one. pray all this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So if you haven't been with us, this is um, our, our third week in a sermon series that we are calling Dangerous Prayers. We're looking at prayers that even though they're great to pray, they're hard to pray and, frankly, dangerous. Because when we pray these things, they they may actually happen. If you pray, search me, God, he he might actually search you. If you pray, break me, God, he, he may actually break you. So today, the prayer we're looking at is this prayer, unite us. And what a prayer this is, right? There, there are many things over this last year, 2019, that can divide us, right? There's no shortage of, of things to argue about. And there were many things that gave us great argument, like how, which way is proper to draw an X? We all know eight is the right answer. If you draw one, you have the strongest forearms in the history of, of writing. Or what about what's the best toast? 
Very divisive issue here. The middle line is acceptable. Everything else, I'm worried about you. If you're going for one, that's just bread. If you like nine, you should get some charcoal briquettes instead. Or the, the biggest maybe battle of 2019, Chick-fil-A or Popeyes. My gosh. Oh, Popeyes, you heard it here. You heard it here. Popeyes has one vote at least. Okay. But really, there's, there's a lot of things that divide us, right? Maybe our age, our race, our gender, our class, our education level. And those aren't just out there problems, right? It's not just other people struggle with that. That's right. Here in the church, we struggle with these divisions, these things that we look at as markers, and they divide us. Psalm 133.1 tells us how wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in harmony or unity. So today we're going to look at this dangerous prayer, unite us. We're going to see where, where, the, where does this unity come from? Why, why is it even important? What's the purpose of it? And then how, how do we actually live this dangerous prayer out? So first, we, we need to look at where this unity comes from, right? The, the producer of unity simply is God. The text that we're looking at today, John 17, it, it comes from uh, what's often called the high priestly prayer, okay? This is Jesus' final prayer before he marches to the cross to atone for the sins of the world. He's talking, he's praying for his ragtag band of disciples in front of him. And you know, oftentimes we as Christians, we, we think of Jesus praying like in kind of a, praying for us really in a theoretical sense. You know, it's like, well, yeah, I know, I know Jesus is interceding uh, for me before the Father. But what's beautiful about this text right here is he says he is praying for you, right? He starts off, I'm praying not just for these disciples in front of me, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. So that, that's you, Jesus is praying for you. He's praying this prayer for you. If you have believed in the message of Jesus Christ passed down through the apostles, then this prayer is for you. It makes it a little bit more personal, doesn't it? So he's praying for you, the Christians here in this room. And what does he pray? He, he says in verse 21, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are in one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. He's praying that we as the church just would be one, just as he, Jesus, and the Father are one. Now, now this, is, this is really heady stuff, okay? This is um, Jesus, what he's talking about here is, is what's often called the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is a foundational doctrine. It's a key to understanding the Christian faith, but it's also one of the hardest things to understand because as humans, we, we have limited understanding of God, we're not omniscient. We don't know all things like God does. And furthermore, we have limitations to our language. There's simply things that are indescribable about God. But simply put, the Trinity is the foundational doctrine that God is one God, but exists in three persons. So each person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, they're all equally God and all equally embody God's characteristics, his holiness, his transcendence, his eternality, his omniscience, his omnipotence, on and on the list goes. 
Each are equally God and have every characteristic of God, yet they are distinct in person. Father, Son, and Spirit. So the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. They are all distinct in person. Now, a very, very, I'm going to, this is a challenge, right, of explaining the Trinity, is you have to say it in very simplistic terms to describe a very complex thing. An easy way to think of this is, is in, being in, in um, being in person, okay? So being can be associated with what? Person associated with who? So again, this is very reductionistic. If you want a great video, The Bible Project has a video on the Trinity. Go check it out. Way more time that they can spend than I have right here. But the Trinity, God is one what? God. And three who's? Persons. He is one God in three persons. Why, why is this important? Why does this matter? It's because we see right here as Jesus prays for us that he, God, the triune God, is unity. The Trinity in its very essence is unity. What's amazing about that is, is God, Jesus, is praying that you all, the church, would be as close to each other, as united with each other, as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I guess that doesn't land on y'all like it lands on me, but <laughs> it is what it is. But look, look at what he says. He's, he's saying, I want you to be so close. I want you to be as close as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And what's beautiful, right, is that Jesus is the one that makes this happen for us. Look at Galatians 3, 26 through 28. Paul says this. He says, for you are, uh, you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. You're putting on the, those fresh new Christmas, uh, Christmas uh, clothes, right? Your new sweater and everything. He says here, this is important, right? He's recognizing there are no longer these divisions that used to define you. There is no longer Jew or Gentile. Think insider, outsider. There's no longer slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So our triune God, who, who is the perfect embodiment of unity, he unites us with one another, just as close, through the work of Jesus Christ. But what does Jesus say the purpose is? Why, why does he do this? Is he like, well, I just want you to feel really good about yourselves. You know, like when you watch Remember the Titans, you get those warm, fuzzy feelings, right? Is that, no, no. What does he say? He says the purpose of unity is for others, Verse 21, I pray that they will all be one as you and I are in one so that the world will believe you sent me. Down in verse 23, may they, you guys, experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them, you guys, as much as you love me. The whole point of our unity is that the world would believe Jesus really is who he says he is and that he really loves you like he says he loves you. No one? No? Nothing? Cool. Look at this, R.C. Sproul. Here's what he says, okay? Come on, y'all. Y'all with me? Anyone with me? No? My gosh, goodness gracious. This is like more awkward than my dentist appointment on Tuesday. All right. R.C. Sproul. Here's what he says about this idea. I think this is huge and so important. The love, concern, and compassion that we have for one another should be so atypical, 
so different of the world, so atypical of the world, that they serve as definitive proof that Jesus was not merely a great moral teacher, but the second person of the Trinity sent by God. That's exactly what Jesus said earlier in John 13. If you remember, he says, your love, again, think unity, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Jesus, he prays for our unity, the unity right here in this church so that others may come to experience saving faith, so that others can experience the flourishing that can only found through a life submitted to and shaped by King Jesus. Now, do you, you see that? Let's look at the flip side, right? If our unity shows the world that Jesus, our unity, hear this, our unity is what shows the world that Jesus really is God and that he really loves his people, the flip side of that, our divisions do a great job at disproving that, don't they? If our unity shows people, if it shows others that God is who he says, that Jesus is who he says he is, and he really loves us, our divisions, our disunity, cast great doubt on Jesus' power, cast great doubt on his love. Look, uh, we're going to go there. Okay, the Iowa caucus is in six weeks, or six weeks, sorry, a few weeks, February 3rd, I think. If you thought 2016 was a divided year, you better buckle up for 2020. I'm not going to make any political statements, but I want you to hear me. The way that you interact with others over the next six months can show that God is who he says he is, or it can cast great doubt on who God is. Yelling at your family over Sunday lunch about politics does not communicate that we are united in Christ. Having days-long arguments on Twitter in all caps does not communicate that we are united in Christ. Maybe you're like, Okay, I keep all those inside. Allowing seeds of bitterness and judgment to take root in your heart as you look at others interact on social media, that does not say that we are united in Christ. If we are in what feels like one of the most divided ages in recent American history, I, I saw an article title yesterday, or this week when I was preparing that said, this is the most divided we've been since the Civil War. I'm not going to go that far, but apparently people feel that way, right? Like, it feels very divided. We feel it in our, in our gut, you know? It's just, it's just there. We can't get around it. If we are living in an age that's so divided, how powerful does a testimony of unity by a church stand out in that environment? We read Psalm 133.1 earlier, but look at what the rest of it says. It says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, and running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for where the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. You're like, that's weird. I don't like beards. Oil, beard, oil beards are even weirder. The dew on the grass just makes my shoes wet. Here's what he's saying. 
Okay, the psalmist is saying that unity is both pleasant, okay, beard was, uh, uh, oil was used um, not only as like a, a perfuming agent, but also a cleansing agent. So he says unity is a pleasant thing. It's pleasing to look at. It smells good, but it's also productive, right? The, the dew that he's talking about here, it helped plants grow in a dry and arid climate. Luscious fruit comes up through these plants, so he, what the psalmist is saying is that unity is both pleasing, it's beautiful to look at, and it's productive. Do you hear that? The, the way you communicate matters. The things that, that your unity says matters. The way you handle conflicts matters. The way you treat Christians matters. It's because our, our unity is both pleasant for non-Christians to see, and it's productive and bringing about salvation to those who do not believe. Unity is a beautiful thing. But that's not to say it's easy, right? Can I get an amen from the church that has joined together two church bodies? This doesn't happen. Why? Because it's stinking hard. The reality is that as, as we pray this prayer, unite us, God, which again, it's dangerous. God will bring us closer together. What happens when you come closer together? Things get hard. Amen for my six-month married folks, right? Honeymoon's done. We're in it. It's hard. So there's two big pains that we'll experience. First, we'll hurt each other, plain and simple. We as a church, as God is uniting us, we will hurt each other. And this isn't just a modern problem, okay? Let's look at Acts 6, verse 1. It says, in those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint, uh uh-oh, by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews. So these are the Greek-speaking Jews who were the outsiders against the Hebraic, the the, um, Hebrew-speaking Jews who were the insiders. The complaint they raised was that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. So the Greek-speaking Jewish widows were not getting their fair share of the daily distribution of money and food um, shared in the early church. That hurts. Now, it wasn't intentional, I don't think. Or here's another example in the early church. Remember uh, when Paul confronts Peter in Galatians. Look at Galatians 3 with me. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face. He didn't say, um, I wrote him a letter or I tweeted at him. I opposed him to his face for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. And even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So Peter, the rock of our church, he allowed divisions to get in his way. He looked at his, his ethnic and religi- these religious issues and he allowed them to divide himself from other brothers and sisters in Christ. And in that, led others astray. Don't you think that's painful if, if you're one of these Gentile believers? You're, you're chumming it up with Peter and then all of a sudden the cool kids come in and he goes and sits at their table? That hurts. 
So not only will we hurt each other, but another pain of unity, and we'll see this from these stories, is that we, ha- we will have to sacrifice for each other. Maybe you're not hurting people by the things you do or the things you say in the church, but you will, no matter what, be required to sacrifice for each other as God unites us. This story in Acts 6, right? The, 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 um, the complaint arose, and then the church took action. They added a whole new piece to the structure of the church. They added the diaconate. It didn't exist before that. They were just elders. And then they're like, oh, shoot, we, we need help, right? They established a whole new uh, structure of the church, one that we still use today. This was a sacrifice for this new church, right? It didn't just happen. It took time. It took prayer. It took changing the old way of, of the way they did things to ensure that all people were being taken care of in the church the way they were supposed to be taken care of. And then the same goes in the story of Peter, right? It obviously was easier for Peter to relate to his old Jewish buddies that he grew up with. They had the same upbringing, the same perspective on life and religion. So it was just, it was easier to slide back into that old way of doing things. But to truly embrace God's vision for a multicultural church, Peter had to sacrifice the easy, the comfortable, the known to pursue something greater that God had clearly called him to. In the midst of these pains that we'll experience, the the call for the church is a call to humility. That is what God calls us to in these pains of unity. Remember what Jesus said in, in verse 22. He says, I have given them, I, Jesus, have given them the glory that you gave me, Father, so they may be one as we are one. Pastor Bill Cook, he um, is an is a author and, and scholar. He says this about this word that Jesus used, glory. He says, glory in this gospel is demonstrated in humble service. So he's talking about the gospel of John. He says, glory in the gospel of John is demonstrated in humble service, a service culminating in the cross. Jesus has given us the glory that the Father gave him. But this glory is only realized in service and sacrifice. Service and sacrifice so far as to death on a cross. He doesn't say, I gave you this glory so you could be right. I gave you this glory so that your preferences could win out at the church. He says, I gave you this glory so that you could be in humble submission to others. That's what Paul calls us to in Philippians. Look at Philippians 2 with me. It says, make me truly happy. He's talking to a church. Church, make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. This is so important. I love this. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. So as we, as we face the pains of unity in the church, as God brings us together, as we pray this crazy, dangerous prayer, we need to have the same attitude that Christ did, and that's one of humility. As Paul says, we, we must consider others as better than ourselves. We can't look out for our interests only, but we need to consider the interests of others too. It's only in humility that we can pray this prayer, unite us, and actually see it move forward and happen. But it doesn't, it doesn't just happen. It takes, takes work, right? So we're going to look at the practice of unity. 
I want to draw your attention. There's a, there's a chart in your bulletin. It'll be up on the screen here in a second. We need to remember God produces this unity, right? He produces it, but we have to work at it. Like all things, we are saved, but we are being saved, right? We are united, but we are being united. In one of his letters uh, to the church in Corinth, Paul gives this beautiful image of the church as a human body. And I think in it, I think we see these, these three big things that, that can help us to pursue unity. See, hospitality, solidarity, and mutuality. So first, hospitality. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, the human body has many parts. Uh, if we can go to the verses now instead, you guys, if you want to look at it, you can follow along in your bulletin. He says the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. So there's our illustration. He says, some of us are Jews, some of us are Gentiles. Some are slaves, some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we share the same spirit. So as the body of Christ, to practice unity, we need to say to each other, I welcome you. The categories that, that the world tries to divide us by, they have no place here. You may speak a different language than me. You may vote differently than I do. Your generation may view the world completely different than I do. But I welcome you into my life. It's not because I'm, I'm a good guy. It's not because I went to like Google's diversity training. It's because the blood of Christ conquered all those trivial divisions. The things that divide us are nowhere near as powerful as the blood of Christ that unites us. So first, we say, I welcome you. Second, we need to practice solidarity. Paul goes on, he says, care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Then in Galatians 6, he says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. So to practice unity, we must say, I stand with you. I am with you, brother or sister. If somebody suffers, we all suffer together. That means we fight for each other, not against each other. We fight for the things that are important to all of us. It's not to say we, we fight for everything, right? God clearly has boundaries for us in the Christian faith. But if it fits within the biblical ethic, man, we sure better fight for each other for it. To be united, we, we can't allow our earthly characteristics to be what define what we stand up for. If one part suffer, every part suffers. Your issues are my issues. My issues are your issues. Your problems are my problems. My problems are your problems. We must remember no political party perfectly embodies God's teaching. No ethnicity perfectly embodies God's teaching. No generation perfectly embodies God's teaching. No gender, no class, no education level. We all have blind spots and we all have shortcomings. And because of that, we need to look at each other and say, hey, I, I, don't, I don't totally get that. But that aligns with God's word. I, I'm, I'm with you. I stand with you. If we don't stand up for those in our church that are different for us or, or worse, we don't even try to understand. What's happening is we're, 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 letting, we're letting these earthly divisions that Jesus had torn down be built right back up. 
So I stand with you. And then thirdly, and this, this is arguably the hardest one, is mutuality. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 12, 18 through 19, he says, But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. You are here for a reason. God wants you here. I don't know why. Many of you don't know why. But God wants you here, right? He put each part where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. Paul is saying, if you were a spleen with legs, you would not be a body. That's weird. If we don't really think that we need each other, if we don't really believe deep within our bones that we need each other, we're short-circuiting our growth, individually, individually and corporately. A united church says, hey, I, I need you. I, I can't be who God fully intended me to be without you. I'm not me without Brother Gary, all right? I'm not me without Sylvester. I can't be who God has called me to be without Kathy. I need you. Romans 12 says we belong to each other. We're not, we're not individuals. We belong to each other. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he picks up on this, this idea, and I love this. I think this speaks to mutuality so much. He says, the universe is so structured that things do not quite work out rightly if men and women are not diligent in their concern for others. The self cannot be self without other selves. I cannot reach fulfillment without thou. I can't be who God intended to me, me to be without you. So social psychologists tell us um, that we cannot truly be persons unless we interact with other persons. All life is interrelated. All men are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. That's exactly what Paul is saying, not only for the local church, but for the universal church. He says, our bodies have many parts. We exist together. As a church, as we pray, unite us. We need to say, I, I welcome you. I, I stand with you. And I need you. We need all of them. If we're missing any of them, it, it, it falls apart, right? No hospitality is just uniformity. It says, you, you can come in here, but you got to look like me. That's not what God calls us to. Without solidarity, it's It's unanimity. Right? It's just, hey, you guys, you have to think uh, about every issue the same way Pastor James and I do. If not, see you later. That's not what God's calling us to. We can be Christians and disagree on, on things. Yeah, you can. Lastly, without mutuality, it's just tolerance. I'm just putting up with you. If you're here, cool. If you're not, don't care, right? 
We, we need everything. The whole works together for us to pursue unity. I welcome you. I stand with you. I need you. Now, if that hasn't overwhelmed you yet, I don't know what will. It's an impossible project in the flesh. Yes and amen. But praise God, he gives us the very power to pursue this. He didn't say, hey, good luck, guys. Here's a couple verses. Memorize those and go, go get after it, right? What does he do? He gives us the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that was in Christ is in you if you're a Christian. Look at what Paul says here in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. He says, I therefore, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk, he's talking to a church together, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility, there's a humility again, starts with that, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Verse 3 is the important part here. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The reality is that you are, if you are united in Christ, the work is done for you. Amen. You are united. All you have to do is be eager to maintain it. And I love it. It's not just any old unity. It's, it's the unity of the Spirit. What God says he's going to do, he does. Because we're united in the Spirit, it's going to get done. It's the, God's Spirit is the very power that binds us together in the bond of peace. That's what Paul says. So church, if you are united in Christ, this is a bond deeper than any bond known to mankind. Nothing supersedes this. All you have to do is fight to maintain it. Just work at it. You labor for it. You pray for it. And then you let the Spirit do the work for us. The world divides us, but the Spirit unites us. The beauty of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that when we experience this gospel, this saving grace, it changes everything. John 17 again Jesus says, I've given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I, in, I am in them and you, Father, are in me. We say it every week right before the sermon during the passing of the peace, but it bears repeating. It's only through experiencing the peace of God or think unity. It's only through experiencing unity with God that you can experience unity with others. Unity with Christ can only be experienced, as Jesus said earlier, through knowledge and lived out faith, believing in this gospel. It's simply recognizing that you, as a sinful person, have built a division between you and God that, that does, does, or wasn't intended to exist. And we read elsewhere that Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility. The very barrier that stood between you and God, he broke down. Because of that work, you can be united with God. Church, we need, we need to remember that we have been united with Christ. And because of this unity that we have with Christ, we are united with one another. Whether you like it or not, you are united with each other. 
So what God is calling us to is to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Let's all together, as a church, I just want us to pray, unite us. And remember, it's not for our sake. It's not so you can feel like warm, fuzzy feelings and feel good about yourself. It's for the sake of God's glory and for the sake of others. Each week when we gather together, we, we take a meal together called communion. Right? You can hear the union in there, right? You hear that? Communion. This meal is a meal that reminds us that we have been united with Christ. That because of his life, death, and resurrection, we no longer have a dividing wall between us and God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread before his disciples who didn't agree with everything that each other said, even had one who literally betrayed him. But still at that meal, they took bread together. It's a picture of unity. After giving thanks, Jesus broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup of wine. He said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. He said, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you're pronouncing Christ's death until he returns. Here at Sojourn, um, our tradition is, is to take off a piece of bread to dip it into the juice. Um, there will be stations up at the front that you can take communion at. There should be instructions behind me in a minute that will tell you where to go. There's gluten-free elements over to my left and to your right. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we ask that you would not partake in this meal, not because we want to exclude you or make you feel isolated, but Scripture teaches that this meal is for those who are about the reality of Christ. Um, and so uh, we, we just ask that at this time you not take that meal, but feel free to talk to one of the pastors afterwards or, or volunteers, and we can prepare you to take communion even next week. I'll pray for us, and then um, as our volunteers get up here, you can come forward um, and take communion together. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.